Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is Jim McKelvey. He is the co-founder of Square, which if you've ever had your credit card processed through a little white square that's connected to the audio input of an iPhone, um, that's because of Jim. Uh, he is the, also the author of the book, The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business One Crazy Idea at a Time. It is a terrific book and it is very funny. So like if you want to read a business book that has some really good story in it, that also has some really great takeaway in it, and that is sort of a joy to read because it's just kind of funny, um, you know, you should pick up the innovation stack. So I'm, I'm really happy to have uh, Jim with us. Jim, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Peter. And thank you for reading the book. I mean, <laughs> it's brand new. And apparently not everybody who interviews you. actually. There are people the who interview me who have not read it. Right. <laughs> and I can tell because, you know, there's some irreverent. Well, you've, you've read it. There's right. some stuff in there. There's one dirty joke that I slipped in and the publisher didn't catch. <laughs> And I and, and then I told them later, and then they said, "Well, where is it?" And I was like, "Well, I can't. I, I, I'm not like, gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you. Like, <laughs> if you don't have enough of a sense of humor to get the dirtiest thing I've ever written, <laughs> I, I'm gonna let it. But like, if you haven't read it, right? I can tell. Right, right, right. right. You know. So that's, I guess, a challenge to me. It is. It is. It, right? it's, okay. it's in there. Right. Yeah. It's in there. <laughs> so, so, um, so let. So the way I want to do this, like when I'm interviewing thought leaders, often I, I, I'm. We're really very much talking about their ideas. I'm very much interested in you as a person, as a leader, and your discovery of the ideas as well, and the story of Square, which I think is really interesting. So let's start with you as a wee child. You grew up? Uh, born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, you know, mom was from New York. Uh, my dad was a professor. Uh, I was basically raised in academia. My father, you know, brought me to campus when I was a little kid. Um, and uh, very geeky, uh, lots of math, lots of, uh, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. Well, and my understanding is your first, I can't remember if this is your first business venture, but basically your first business venture was writing a textbook. I wrote a textbook when I was a freshman in college. Because you were pissed off. Because I was pissed off. The professor forced the class to buy this text that he had written that was terrible. And I was so upset having to read this thing and buy this thing. Because, you know, you, the, he got paid for right. making us buy his book. And the book was terrible. Um, and... A lot of the programming examples didn't work, and I was so frustrated that I said to my roommate, I said, I could write a better book than this. Right. And he said, well, why don't you? And I was like, all right, I will. Okay. So yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> how you do stuff, right? So I started writing a textbook, and I spent the summer of my freshman year writing a computer science text, which was funny because I had never played with computers as a kid. I was not a computer science major. Right. Uh, I was an economics major, and I had no qualifications for this, like zero. So let me ask you a question, because you, you write about this in your sort of chapter around entrepreneurship. Yep. And, and like there's a way in which you know, anybody can learn to be an entrepreneur. But I wonder about whether you could actually develop that or whether like you're born with it. Because it, it, like how many people get frustrated with a textbook and then just decide to rewrite it in a subject they know nothing about. 
So I don't know. I mean, it, it seemed natural for me. Right. Um, it's probably not normal for everybody. But here's my point, and this is the thing that I sort of discovered when I was researching what, what we're going to talk about today, and that is, I don't think entrepreneurs, real entrepreneurs, as we'll get into the definition, uh, have any particular skill set. Mm-hmm. They maybe just have a little less discomfort with doing stuff that hasn't been done before. Right. So I mean, look. I was clearly not qualified to write a textbook, right. um, but I wrote the damn thing. And lo and behold, it was a huge success because right. it turns out that if you're a freshman idiot writing for other freshman, freshman idiots. idiots, you write at a level that just works. Right. And the professors were way up here. They understood all this theory that we didn't understand, but I understood what the student was feeling. Right. And so I connected with all these students and the thing became well a, a real hit. And then, um, and then the publisher asked for a second book right. and that one became a bestseller right. and it was it was it was because of my ignorance it was because the stuff that was confusing me i just assumed was confusing everybody else and so, i explained it so let me ask you a question why not at that point as an entrepreneur build a publishing house that recreates every textbook from the vantage point of the student because we know now that this is a successful product well because i had midterms you know, I was, I was playing, like I had to finish school. You know, I was doing this. I took the money, like, like literally, I took the money for the book. Um, I bought a Porsche, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, resold the car. I was, I was like, I was importing automobiles from, from Europe. I, I was just goofing around. Right. Um, and it wasn't, it, so it's excruciating to write a textbook. Right. It was kind of boring. Uh, and I wasn't that interested in computers. Right. So, um, but the funny thing about that experience was it taught me how, little formal qualification you need to actually have something that is commercially successful. Right. Because, you know, like, like we sold a bunch of books in Australia. The Aussies weren't, you know, looking up my academic credentials. Right. Um, and uh, if the book's good, it's good. Right. Right. And they were probably also looking at sales numbers and going, well, it's good and it's selling and people are using it in universities. Well, you yeah, yeah. The, the, the snowball starts rolling and then, right. you know, you get right. all this street cred. So continue to walk us through your entrepreneurial career. What was next for you? Uh, so graduated uh, with degrees in computer science and uh, economics. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to work briefly for IBM as a contractor. But mm-hmm. during that time, I was also working at a startup. Right. Um, the startup was run by a crook. I quit. And then I needed an income. Uh, and I decided I would blow glass. So... so looks to the naked eye like a left turn. It was, right? a, it was a sharp veering left because um, what happened one day, I, I was working with this guy, he was a crook, and I said, I quit. And then I had no way to pay the were rent. You in that moment, were you, what, what were you feeling? Like, were you scared? Were no, you... no, no, no. It was just, oh, like I'd, I'd watched him with other people right. and I saw how he was dealing with other people. And then this little light went on and I said, wait a second, he's going to do that same stuff to me. Right. Like when it's my turn. Right. And, it's, and as soon as I said that, I just quit. <laughs> I was like, I'm out. Right. But then I woke up the next morning, I had no way to make a living. Right. Um, and did that occur to you when you no. quit or no? No. No. Okay. It was like, I'm out. Right. So I'm out. And then I'm starting to see a trend in entrepreneurial thinking or, or, or lack thereof. Yeah. yeah. Just <laughs> like not necessarily <laughs> thinking through the next three steps. No, 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 no. Right. Um, so you, so I became a glass blower, not because I was a great artist, but because it was the only skill that I had that I thought could make money quickly. Right. So I went into the studio, made a bunch of work, and started trying to sell it. And it's, it wasn't sell because my work was terrible. 
Um, but it's amazing how quickly you can learn a skill right. if you have to do that skill for a living. So right. I got really serious about art really fast, and within a month I was selling. And then um, glass is really this wonderful material. Well, and it's material. not just getting competent in that skill, but it's the selling part, too. Like, there's lots yeah. of people who blow glass, I'm sure, and don't sell a piece. Yeah, so I was unconstrained by artistic integrity. <laughs> So like, all these other people were trying to be artists. I was like, oh, pink and blue matches your couch? Fine. Like, right. I will make it. I don't care. Right. Like, lady, give me a sample of your curtains and I will. So yeah. already super, I mean, I don't want to like overdo this, but yeah. highly customer oriented. Very right? much. Like, like, it's like, I will, but you want it, I'll make it. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right. And to this day, I mean, literally this week I made a commission that I didn't really want to make for somebody who wanted a piece and I just. I just had to make it. I was like, I can't say no. So, so you're still doing it. I still make glass. And yeah. yet it's not your main gig. No, I don't do it for a living anymore. Right. Yeah. Right. And why did you, why did you stop doing it for a living? So um, I stopped for a while after my mother died very suddenly. And I was really depressed and very sad. And I realized that I was mediocre at everything that I did. So I had this other company that made storage cabinets for compact discs. Uh, I, was, I was moonlighting for IBM. Mm -hmm. um, blowing glass and I was like a mediocre IBM employee and I was a mediocre artist and I was, you know, a mediocre business person. And I thought the solution is to focus because I'd heard that good people focus. focus. Like, and so I was like, okay, I'm going to quit everything I'm doing half-assed and I'm going to focus. I'm going to do one thing. And so I started this company uh, called Mira to build software and started with a friend of mine. And that was all I did for five years. I made no money <laughs> and I was starving. You were death. focused though. I was focused and failing. Right. It was a disaster. So my friend quit after about two years. So it was like me by right. myself. Right. Like just solo. And then we slowly built the company back. And then um, actually Jack Dorsey was one of our interns. Uh -huh. Jack, Jack came in in the middle of this fire drill week where we'd screwed something up. And Jack had to... Dorsey, to be clear, who worked on, on Square yeah, with you, so, who was also co-founder of so, Twitter. Yeah, so I met Jack, uh, or miraculously, I met Jack's mother, mm -hmm. uh, who sold us chocolate-covered espresso beans, which was how we stayed awake before Ridlin was widely available. <laughs> and we ended up uh, hiring Jack as a summer intern. He was awesome. Uh, he became, you know, part of the crew and he worked with us a couple of summers and we stayed in touch ever since. And then, right. you know, kept in touch with Jack and Jack started Twitter and then they kicked him out of Twitter and then he came back to St. Louis and we hooked up. This was about 10 years ago. Right. And he said, uh, why don't you start a new company with me? And I was like, all right, let's do something. So that's how Square started. Oh, that's interesting. I thought it was your suggestion. I forgot that. I, I, it was I, his suggestion to start the company. Right. It was my idea what the company the should company, do. Right. Okay, great. So, so now let's start because let's let's go along this path yeah. of, of Square and the innovation stack and yeah. like how you got to that idea. So you're like, okay, let's start a company. Great. Doing what? What do you want to do? Right. Yeah. Like, Peter, what do you want to do? Right. And you're like, I don't know, Jim. What do you want to do? And so, we, so Jack and I did this back and forth. And uh, so I was like, well, let's go out. Uh, and so we basically locked ourselves in a room for a week and, you know, brainstormed ideas. And we knew we wanted to do something with mobile phones. Right. Um, and we knew we didn't want to do anything with social networking. So Jack was like, nothing that was Twitter-like. And right. I was like, cool, because I don't, you know, get all that stuff necessarily. And um, so we were casting about for an idea. Right. And I went back. And, so, and we hired our first employee. Mm -hmm. Because we needed a guy to code the iPhone client of whatever we were going to do. We knew there was going to be some iPhone component. Right. Um, so we'd hired our first employee. He was starting. And we, we were kicking around a couple of ideas. And I had some ideas. And Jack had some ideas. And we really couldn't settle. 
we picked one of Jack's ideas, mm -hmm. which was this journaling app that we never really fleshed out entirely. And I went back to St. Louis to sort of get my affairs in order and move out to California. Right. And when I was out there, I was trying. I came into my studio, got a order from a lady in Panama who wanted to buy a glass bathroom faucet, like this ridiculous piece of glass, orange and swirly, and it was hideous. <laughs> and it had been sitting on the shelf for two years. And I was like, So you already had it? Oh, I had it made. Right. It was just sitting there, you know. Right. Just blow off the dust and right. shove it in the box. And uh, really expensive too, right? Uh, and I lost the sale because I couldn't take an Amex card. Right. And I was so pissed off. Because because your glass blowing studio is small and you don't, you know, like you're not the size of business yeah. or company that can be accepting credit cards at that point. So we took MasterCard and Visa. Mm -hmm. So I tried to steer her over to MasterCard or Visa and she was like, I don't have those. My husband has the Visa card. And I was like, Use his. Oh, oh, let me, I was like, oh, let me get this right. He doesn't know you're about to spend 3000 bucks on this piece of glass. And he, yeah. And she was like, yeah, you know, so lost the sale because right. I couldn't take an American Express card. And that led me to look at my iPhone in my hand. And I thought this device just failed me. Mm -hmm. And my attitude to the iPhone or any piece of technology is this thing should do whatever I want. Right. Like it turns into a movie camera right now. It turns into a Geiger counter if you're in, you know, right. some places. It can, like the, the iPhone can morph into anything. It'll turn into right. a TV or a book right. or, you know, uh, a map. Right. And it wouldn't turn into a credit card machine. Right. Which is insane. Yeah. So, so already we've got our first problem. Right? Yeah. Which is like, you know, you're, you, you, you need to use, you want to be able to use your iPhone in order to very simply and easily process credit card. Yep. Great. So you go back to Jack? Go back to Jack. Uh, show him the problem. Uh, actually, I called him that afternoon because he was in California and mm -hmm. I described the problem. He said, well, that's interesting. We should talk about it. So we talked about it for about a week and I convinced him that this is what we should do. Right. And it was a great thing because we already had our first client, which was me. Right. Um, and more than me, we had uh, this friend of mine who I always think of when I build stuff, uh, Bob. I have a friend who, you know, he's a very interesting guy. Uh, is he, this is an imaginary friend? Or no, no, no. He's, he's a real... An actual friend. I have some of those, too. But, um, no, Bob's real. Um, but he's, uh, he's a really interesting guy. And he's had some knocks in life that have prevented him from, you know, sort of banking the way normal people bank. Right. And um, there's no way Bob could accept credit cards. There's no way... And, and because I knew... Also that, a glassblower. He was also a glassblower, right. a great glassblower. And he was not able to sell his work... Because he couldn't get paid at all. Right. And b believe me, Peter, if you, if you sell something that nobody needs, you better, better make it be easy. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. These are impulse right. things. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's beautiful. Right. You know, are you going to you know, call me on Tuesday and remember? No. Right. Like, right. I need to get paid now. Right. So right. we built this thing with Bob in mind. Or right. at least that was it's great. my idea. So, and, and, and like any entrepreneur class that, they, that you would have, and it's questionable as to whether you should have entrepreneur classes, but any entrepreneur class you should have would say, find a problem that you're facing that you don't have a solution for, build a solution around it. I think so. I right. mean, I think, I think the formula, if you, if you need a formula, here's a formula. Uh, find a problem that pisses you off enough to motivate you. Right. Um, because money and fame and all the other stuff, all the sort of secondary uh, effects are very weak. Right. Um, so Jim, but, this sounds super simple. You just build a device. How hard could it be? Because there's all these devices processing credit cards. 
Seems like a simple solution. I'm sure someone else had developed it beforehand. I thought so too. I thought I could just go out and buy the components and put this thing together and right. we'd be out the door in a couple of weeks. Not the case. And I, 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 there was nothing. Right. And we kept looking for something that would serve the small merchant. And what we eventually discovered was that the rules had been basically designed to prevent anybody who sold less than $100,000 a year from accepting credit cards. Right. And if you didn't sell $100,000 worth a year, th th you could technically process, but it just was disastrous. Right. And all of the things that we were trying to do were outside of the world that had been already served by the credit card world. Um, so we ended up, uh, un unbeknownst to us, sort of forging this new path for credit card acceptance on behalf of all these tiny little merchants. Right. And what led me to, uh, you know, sort of discover the innovation stack in hindsight was that this process of invention and invention and invention and invention creates this mass of interlocking innovation that is really hard to copy. Right. Which is, which, you know, go to the punchline, which is amazing because Amazon tried and failed. Amazon tried. So the worst thing that can happen to any business is... Amazon enters your market. Hold on, we're talking with Jim McKelvey. We're talking about his book, The Innovation Stack. He's one of the co-founders of Square. And, and, and I, I, I just love a cliffhanger right now, which Ooh, is yes. like Amazon, you know, tried to, to take over the business and failed, or tried to, to replicate the business and failed. So we're gonna get there. Before we get there, let's talk about the the kinds of problems, because I found this a very interesting part of the book, the kinds of problems you started to encounter. So it's like, okay, so, you know, what do we need to do? We need to build a, a credit card processing machine that connects with the iPhone. Seems simple enough. But beginning that, like focusing on that problem and beginning to solve that problem buys you a couple of other problems. Oh, God. So bring us through that and then we'll... we'll... So there were dozens and I won't, won't bore you with all of them, but the first thing is how do you read the credit card? Mm -hmm. So, uh, second day of the company, Jack and I have this fight about how we're going to read the credit card. And Jack's like, I don't want to build any hardware. Let's use the camera. Take a photo. And I was like, well, that's useless because a photo doesn't prove you have the card. Because I can take a photo of your card and mail it to India. Does, they have the, does that mean the card's in India making purchases? Like, right. no, because a photo's too easy to transport. So, I said, well, we got to read the Magstripe because that's what the industry does. Right. And Jack was like, well, now we need spe separate hardware and you can't build that. And I was like, yes, we can. He's like, no, you can't. And so, we had this little fight. Um, and I thought, well, I better go build the hardware before Jack can get his OCR working. <laughs> so, um, I flew back to St. Louis and uh, put a little team together to build the, uh, the hardware. Right. And we ended up uh, with a working prototype a couple of weeks later. Did you have funding for the company at this point? No. Well, it was just Jack and me. We had some savings. Jack and you. you had some yeah. savings. Okay. Great. So you build the prototype. It works most of the time. It works most of the time. Um, and then we get into the situation um, where we start looking at the rest of the credit card system, mm -hmm. which is you know connecting to the banks and uh, how you do sign up and how your merchant services agreements, because there, there, there are ways to do this. Right. And we realized literally on the first day that we were in violation of 17 different laws, regulations, and rules. <laughs> like we were violating MasterCard's op operating regulations, we were violating visas, we were violating a bunch of KYC and OFAC, and right. we were a bunch of like banking laws, uh, I mean, like, just like, it was, 
We stopped counting after 17. It could have been more than seven, but I, I, I was like tallying them up on this sheet of paper. And when I got to 17, I was like, I now know why nobody's ever tried this. And to me, like you're, if, if I'm remembering correctly, your response to that was like both brilliant and surprising, which was you just ignored it and kept going. Yeah, plow ahead. <laughs> like, like, you know, you would think at a point at which you realize you're violating a whole bunch of laws, it's like, okay, we're going to have to solve this. We're going to have to deal with legislators or we're going to have to find ways around it. And you just sort of kept going. Yeah, well, there was one. So the, the laws were reasonable. Right. Okay. Um, and we thought, well, at some point we could get to com get complying with, you know, like KYC, know your customer. That's an right. important thing. We figured at some point we'd be able to do that. Right. You know, um, uh, and, and a lot of the, you know, sort of Washington-based laws, we figured we could comply with. The, the two things that we were absolutely dead, dead, we had to change were MasterCard and Visa had specific rules against doing exactly what we were doing, which was card present aggregation, mm -hmm. which is we were collecting on behalf of a bunch of little merchants uh, charges that we would then submit to the network. Right. So it was our balance sheet, not their balance sheets, and it was our credit, not their credit. But acting as an intermediary was specifically forbidden. Like it was like they, they had imagined a business like ours and said, we don't want it. Right. So in order to get MasterCard and Visa to change, we had to basically convince these massive organizations that they should change. So fast forward to a meeting that you're in with MasterCard. Terrifying. And you're presenting this, but not having solved for the fact that you've, you're actually violating their laws. So it's about rules. a year into the company. We've got everything working. We've got the hardware built. Uh, we've got the software working. Everything's working. 50 other problems. It's, all these other problems are solved. And it's moving money right. in direct violation of what MasterCard is doing. <laughs> Uh, and uh, we get this meeting with uh, uh, Ed McLaughlin and his team in Purchase, New York. And Jack and I fly up there and uh, we go into the room. Now, you got to remember, by this time, we demoed this thing probably a hundred times. Jack and I had our game down. And Jack's a very good guy to demo with because he never interrupts. And I never interrupt. So, so there's that moment when there's just dead silence in the room. And Jack and I will not violate, violate that silence. And um, so we do this demo for the head of MasterCard. Using his MasterCard, I take... His own MasterCard? Yeah, yeah. Take it, swipe it. And he says... How much money did you take from... Uh, a dollar. Because uh, my understanding yeah. is, depending on whether you like the person or not, oh, when yes. you were doing demos, yes. you took more or <laughs> yes, less money fact, off of their credit card. In fact, if we didn't like you, you can look back at your statement. The most we ever charged was a guy who we thought was a total tool. He paid 40 bucks <laughs> to watch Square demoed. <laughs> if, you, if you were charged for a dollar, it's the highest compliment we could pay. You know, if you, got your, if you got your statements from 10 years ago, look them up and you'll know. <laughs> Just telling you. But we charged him a buck. A okay, buck. so you liked it. Uh, so we, yeah, he's the guy from MasterCard. He was about to save our necks, and uh, he says, "He says uh, that's great. Is this a is this a fake transaction?" And and I said, "No, sir. It's real. You're going to see the money leave your account now." And he said, "You realize what you're doing is violating our operating regulations." And I said, "Yes, sir. We know." What were you feeling in that moment? The lower half of my body went numb. I mean, I was like, and, and and after I said yes, sir, we know, nobody said a word. And is 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 the very business hinging on this yes. moment 
So the entire business, everything, everything we've done, that you've done so far, everything we've done, is hinging on this moment. You know, we a year and a half of work for a dozen people. I think we, I think we'd been funded by. The, I mean, we were, we were, we were there. The whole thing worked. Right. And um, twenty seconds of silence. And Ed turns to his team and said, "So I guess we have to change our operating regulations." <sighs> <laughs> you I can know, feel my legs again. Yeah, I was like, right. blood back. Right. Um, it was terrifying, but look, they had to change. And they should have changed. Like, it was a good decision for MasterCard to right. do that. But there are many examples right. when the right thing is not done by these big companies. Yeah. And there could be some, you right, know, right. 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 So um, tell me the concept of an innovation stack. So an innovation stack is this thing that I that I discovered exists at the genesis of new markets. Okay, so what we have to do is talk about copying mm -hmm. and how copying is probably the most powerful force in the world and almost everything is a copy of something else. Like, okay, like this fireplace screen, okay? It's a nice fireplace screen. It was not the original right. fireplace screen. And, you know, nor was this, you know, metal or these chairs or, or frankly, you and me, you know, we're copies of our parents. You know, I, I see some of your relatives up there. I'm, I'm guessing, you know, nothing in this room is, is truly original, which is good because original stuff almost always doesn't work. <laughs> like you invent something totally new, it's probably terrible. But sometimes right. a new thing works and in that case it gets copied. Okay, that's how the universe works. The problem with copying is that it doesn't create new things. So if you have a truly new problem, you end up without the ability to copy the solution. Right. In which case you got to do invention. And this is the problem that I address in the book because what I discovered was that we have this essentially word problem, mm -hmm. which is that the, there is no word in the English language to describe a business person who solves a new problem. Mm -hmm. We used to have a word like that. It was called entrepreneur. But these days, entrepreneur means business person. I can be a coffee entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I can open a coffee shop. Okay. Right. Lots of other people have opened coffee shops. I can actually go to a convention where everybody knows how to open a coffee shop. I can have right. coffee consultants. As a matter of fact, one of my friends is a coffee consultant. You want to open a coffee shop, I will give you a guy who you know, opened Blue Bottle Coffee. He, he trained the Blue Bottle guys to right. open Blue Bottle. Right. You know, his name's Howard Lerner. Howard will teach you. And you will be a coffee. So it's basically like person. a franchise. Yeah, like of sorts. It's of sorts. Right, right. If you should, if you can copy, you should copy. But in some cases, you can't. In some right. cases, you're solving a problem that has not been solved before. In which case, you have to invent, and right. you probably have to invent a lot of things. And the thing that I realized about innovation was that in Square's case, we didn't do just one or two things differently. We did about fourteen things mm -hmm. that had never been done. Right. And it wasn't that we were trying to invent new stuff. It was just that we needed to. We kept creating more problems. We'd solve one problem and it would create two others. Right. So now we had to have two other problems to solve. And we looked to see if we could copy the solution to either of those new problems. Well, if we couldn't, now we had to invent more. So right. it just kept going and going and going. And eventually we ended up with 14 things that we were doing differently. But if we did all of those 14 things differently, then the system worked. Right. And... Of course, we and didn't. There's no way you could have predicted that ahead of time. 
We didn't even know what's happening. Right. None of this, we didn't. So everything is trial and error. Like, it's not like you could, you know, in a corporate environment, you create a budget and you create a, you know, some structure and then you plan yeah. out what the year looks like. And what you're doing is you're like trying stuff and then finding six problems and solving yep. those problems and finding 12 more. Amen. Amen. Right. And so what happened and what led me to this whole thing with the innovation stack and the book and all this stuff is Amazon did the worst thing in the world. They copied our product. They undercut our price. They added the Amazon brand to it. And then they added live customer service, which we didn't have. Right. And everyone's like, oh, Square's dead. Because nice. every time Amazon has done this to any company, it's been like, oh, well, they're dead. Right. You know, oh, Zappos, well, they're part of Amazon. Diapers.com, part of Amazon. Yeah, name right. any company that Amazon has played this game with, part of Amazon. Did they try to buy you? Nope. No. Just killed. They were like, oh, stand on the plastic, please. Right. You know. Right. Uh, because so. Zappos, they bought, and Diaper.com, yeah. but, but they didn't try to buy you. Um, no. Right. <laughs> okay, they were just going to, they, they were, were like, just gonna... so that's, there's like, there was some hubris, I guess, there, but that was the, the idea, if we're not going to buy you, is like, because why bother to buy them? We'll, we'll just, just wipe them out. We'll just wipe them yeah, out. We'll just wipe them out. It's so simple. cheaper to do it right. So, um, and I don't know what they were thinking, but that was it. Um, so, uh, everyone thought Square was dead. We looked at what other successful companies had done to beat Amazon. Now, at this point, you were, you're still, you're venture funded. Venture funded, four years old, not public. Four years old, not public. Yeah. Very little resources. I mean, we were doing all right. We had a lot right. of, a million customers. Um, but we were not Amazon, right? And they were running their playbook that always worked. And we looked for other companies to guide us in how to withstand an attack by Amazon. Found none. Mm -hmm. Looked at what we could mm -hmm. do differently, and amazingly, couldn't think of anything to do differently. Like we looked at all the stuff we were doing, and we're like, well, we're doing this for the right reason, and this for the right reason. We like how we're doing this, so we just did what we were. We, we basically did nothing. So you said, we're just going to, they're going to compete. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. We're going to do what we're doing because we think we're doing it for the right reasons. Was that terrifying for you at terrifying. that point? Yeah. Because you want to do something. Right. Like, okay. So like, you know. You can really spend a lot of time spinning your wheels. Oh my God. A million things, spending a ton of money. And yeah. You know, I, I, so I'm from St. Louis. My city flooded in 92. I had the best tan of my life because I was building, you know, levees all all summer. Right. Great deltoids. I mean, I was like you know, bagging sand again you because know, you know you're gonna, you know, nature is gonna flood your city. Right. You fight back. Right. You want to do something, even though none of those levees held. Okay. <laughs> you still felt better. I was doing at least something. doing something. Right. Amazon attacks. We looked at what we were doing, and we didn't do anything differently. So, and and how do you like the confidence to not do anything in a situation is really like I just want to unpack it for a second because. There's like, is it confidence? Is it, is it uh, uh, a sense of hopelessness? Like what, like, what is it in that moment? If you bring yourself back to that moment. It's rational thought over fear. It's rational thought over fear. So you, you said, you, you asked that, and I immediately pictured the time. So I'm a, I'm a pilot and I fly small planes. Right. And small planes are terrifying, okay? Because <laughs> you get into weather. You know, jets can go over the weather. Right. A little plane goes either around it or through it, okay? Right. Or up and down in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, I've gotten into some stuff where I'm like, I'm going to die, you know. And, and at that moment, you're terrified, but you still have to act right. rationally. Because right. if, you, if you're an irrational pilot, you are dead. Right. Um, so you're terrified, or at least I am, um, but you still got to fly the plane. Right. Okay, so Amazon's attacking you. Great. What are you going to do? Right. 
So you go through your options, conclude that there's nothing else different that you should do. Right. You like all the things you're doing. Right. So you keep doing so it. So you say like this is like scary as hell. Yeah. But yeah. we're not going to make stupid moves right now. We're we just going to manage we, we our did not emotional do a thing differently. need to act and not act. No, we didn't do a thing differently. Wow. I mean, so then what happened? We heard nothing for like a year. So you were running your business. Your business didn't suffer? Not noticeably. Not noticeably. We're growing like crazy, you right. know. Right. So, so, and you're, you're advertising. You're continuing we're doing to do our stuff. stuff. Yeah. You do. We're doing, we are running and, square. And meanwhile, uh, symmetrically, Amazon is, is, you know, on the side. Yeah. Kind of doing, trying to sell their product. Yes. Right. And a year later, on Halloween night... It was Halloween. You were in a bumblebee costume. I was in a, dressed as a giant wasp, which I always do. Um, um, no, no. I was. I was. It was Halloween, and Amazon announced, "We're out. We quit. Right. We're we're going to send a square reader to all of our former customers, but we are out I mean, of this." That's the most amazing part of the it story. Was, it was so cool. So. Props to Amazon for how they how they got out of the market. Like that was that was so cool. Like you never, I don't know. Have you ever gotten into a, like a fight with somebody and then afterwards you're like, wow, really cool person. You know, right. I felt that way. I mean, I felt like, oh right. wow, they were really cool. Like, right. So um, yeah, so Amazon so they gave all of their customers a square you. reader. And they gave them to you. They gave yes. they they everyone who was already customer we're out gave them to you. You guys can have them. you out. Go to the go to the people who are best at this. It was the coolest move I've ever seen. Right. Right. And um, and so where there's this flood of relief. Right. Well, we won. Right. And then, of course, because I'm never satisfied, I was like, oh, that's great. Why? Like, why did we win? Right. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Nobody beats Amazon. Right. This doesn't happen. Right. Nobody. Name another name. You. So you're an expert in this. I see all your books. You're, you're, you're famous. <laughs> You should know one other example. Can right. you think of any? No. I mean, I might not know, but I cannot think of an example. Neither can I. Right. And I studied the thing right. for three years. Right. I talked to all the companies they wiped out. Right. I talked to their CEOs. I talked to their former employees. Right. I got some great stories, right. all off the record, because nobody will go on the record about what right. actually Amazon did. Right. I couldn't explain it. Right. And so I went on this search, because I'm a... I'm a scientist by nature, and I was like, I have to explain what happened. Right. Like this, this can't just be luck, right? Right. And I couldn't find any other examples. Right. So I'm wandering around, um, literally, with this question burning in my head, and um, and I, I stumbled. I was I was in a I was in a palace in Spain, mm -hmm. and they had funded the voyage of Christopher Columbus, and mm -hmm. they had. Columbus's letters, which he wrote these books. And, and I'm looking at these letters. An old dilapidated palace. Uh, it was a beat up old palace <laughs> that they were, they, they rented it out for parties. Right. Okay. Um, and, but they had this library that was, you know, the, the tour group left and I was just mesmerized. I was like, thinking about Columbus's voyage. I was like, wait a second. Imagine Columbus's pitch deck, right? He's like, I'm going to go sail yeah. in a direction where everybody has disappeared. Like nobody comes back right. if you sail, right. you know, straight to the west. Right. And yet, that's what I'm going to do. And if I'm wrong, 
you're going to lose all your money and everyone on my team, including me, is going to die. Right. Uh, but give if us the money away. And if you're right, you have exclusive access to a new market. Yes. Yeah. All politics aside. Yeah. We're just talking about the entrepreneurial element. Of yeah. It. Right. Trade access to India. That's where they right. thought they were going. Right. And um, I thought about it. I was like, oh, my God. Columbus was an entrepreneur. He was somebody who did something that had not been done before. Right. And I was like, oh, my God. All the stuff that Columbus was dealing with were sort of like big problems. And I had like little right. junior versions of his problems. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, there's the parallel. And, and all of a sudden, I realized what the solution was to answering my question of how we beat Amazon, uh -huh. which is... History has to be full of examples of this. Right. So I kept, I, I, you know, I was looking around Silicon Valley and I was looking around, you know, sort of contemporary business and, and none of the answers were there. But you look back in history right. and it's just full of them. Take the start of any industry and you will see an innovation stack. Right. And you will see this messy process of invention, this, this moment when you can't copy your way to a solution, right. where you're very rapidly changing stuff. And then I look back and I was like, oh my God, that explains aviation, like the Wright brothers. Like, like right. it explains uh, frozen foods, like, you know, like bird's eye, like the way they freeze vegetables at mi make minus 40. Like, it's amazing. Right. Like the discovery of a frozen, you know, a, a properly frozen pea was, uh, you know, was happenstance. But, but it turns out these aren't single inventions. Right. They're messy stacks of inventions. And I looked at this and I was like, oh my God. And stacks, when you say stacks of inventions, it right. means problem solution, problem solution, problem yes. solution, problem solution. Yeah. Right. All. And problem solutions that you couldn't foresee all the problems ahead of time. Correct. Because one solution creates two more problems. Yes. And because it hasn't been done before. Right. Which is why persistence from an entrepreneurial perspective is so critical. Because yes. Because if you're not going to be persistent after 12 problems, you give up. You quit. Yeah. How do you know? If you're going to be 70 problems down going, this was a bad idea, but I'm just not going to quit. You How don't. do you know when is the right time to quit? You don't. I don't know when the right time is to quit. Right. I almost killed myself. I've almost killed myself in a couple of cases because I've literally put myself in so much danger because I don't know when to quit. Right. And I have, I, I have a deficiency there. These days I surround myself with people who are like, Jim, you might not want to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, you, I mean, look, if if it's survival, right, you either survive or die, right. Um, people don't die in business. Mm -hmm. They're you know they could wipe their savings out or right. you know lose a lot of money for other people. You know, but the penalty's usually not capital punishment. Right, right. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe you get funded by. <laughs> Thinking of a couple of guys Depends that which my house about with. to say, <laughs> you know, I won't I name their names, but you know. <laughs> so tell us where Square is today. Oh my God, uh, we're international. We have uh, a dozen different products to serve small businesses. Uh, we have a, a completely new line of business, uh, the Cash App, mm -hmm. which is phenomenal. Um, we have. Uh, you know, literally millions of users, but you know, the core product, mm -hmm. same thing, right? You know, and uh, you I think can... we tried to use it, and because because we process stuff, but not, but we never see someone's credit card. Everything's online yeah. or over the phone, and I think we couldn't. You must have an app at this point for processing credit cards where you don't need a reader and you can't. Oh, you can't that's been in there for, since day one. Yeah, yeah, you can okay. do that. Okay. Because when I sell, I usually almost never see my customers. Right, right, right. Um, right. But, 
Yeah, it's uh, it's a big deal. Right. Uh, I don't know what our market cap is. I don't ever look at the stock price because it mm-hmm. stresses me out. Right. It's massive. It's right. like tens of billions of dollars and somewhere there. Right. You know. Um, How has this success changed your life or has it? <sighs> People don't tell me when I'm really acting dumb. Mm-hmm. They don't change as often as, as much anymore. That, that, that's sort of the main thing. Um, it's It hasn't improved sort of materially that much because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was doing pretty well before Square. Right. I'd had these companies. I, I had everything I wanted. Right. Um, I um, I bought a couple of places. I, I got a place here in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. It's nice. Right. You know, before that I would visit and stay with friends and that was almost kind of nicer, right. you know, so now I don't have to stay with my friends, you know. Um, that's, there hasn't, there hasn't been much it is interesting though. That point is very interesting. How like when we have money, it affords us to do things that are sort of the natural next step of like, you know, staying with friends, stay in a hotel, stay in your own apartment. But it doesn't necessarily make your life nicer. Yeah, which is I mean kind of interesting. It might. For it, for many people it might. It makes your life maybe more comfortable. Yeah. But so what I realized is that I'm ego constrained mm-hmm. when it comes to money. Mm-hmm. And that is like I don't have the ego to buy really, really fancy stuff. Right. And my wife and I are the same way. We have a, you know, a little house with two bedroom or two, you know, two, right. two car garage. Very Warren Buffett of you. Uh, yeah, but we're not even, we're like, we're, it's not some political statement. It's right. just we looked at where we wanted to live. It's like, well, we could have this like big mansion right. and a bunch of you know, land around it that I would have to mow or find somebody I'm to 100% mow. I 100% in agreement with you. Know? you. And then my kid has no friends. Right. You know? Right. Well, so, that's, the, that's the problem that people with money often end up with, which is that they do the natural extension and they isolate themselves. Like that's the, you yeah. know, that's the, that's the challenge. That's one of, one, of the, you know, one of the dangers. Yeah. So, I mean, it hasn't really changed that much. It's... Um, I gave a big gift to Washington University's engineering school mm-hmm. in honor of my father, mm-hmm. uh, who taught there for 27 years. Um, I've uh, I, I, so I started a nonprofit called Launch Code, which mm-hmm. is training people for free to become programmers. That's right. a great program. I back them. Um, uh, I'm, I'm rebuilding parts of St. Louis because, like, you have to be almost crazy to do some of the stuff that I've done in real estate because it makes no sense at all. And I was like, oh, well, you need a rich idiot. Hey, you know, <laughs> so I mean, only an idiot would do. Hey, I know the guy, you know, so, you know, I'm experimenting with some, uh, uh, with some urban rehab. Um, it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not giving it back right. directly, but I'm trying to get rid of it indirectly. Right, so. right, right. Um, you make this point in the book, and, and I think it's a super interesting point, and specifically related to the innovation stack, which is, in retrospect, we can look back and go, oh, wow, all of these were really smart decisions. Yeah. And yet, luck plays, plays an important role. Luck and, is and, huge. Uh, yeah. Luck is funny because, in my opinion, you don't feel lucky when you're working hard. Mm-hmm. So if I you love that point. I think it's yeah. such an important point. Say it again. because You it's so don't, important. if you're working hard and you get lucky, you attribute your success to the hard work and not the luck. Right. 
Okay. So if you win the lottery, you haven't done anything for it. You're like, wow, I'm really lucky. Yeah. So you work super hard and, and and you win the same lot. You get you win the, the same. same you, you know, you a buyer comes out of nowhere and 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 buys something, then you're like, wow, I, my work paid off. A thousand companies started the same year Square did. We're the one that made it to tens of billions of dollars of market cap. Right. And the rest of them didn't. Right. Okay. Now are Jack and I geniuses? Are we so smart? Or did we get lucky? Well, I don't know. I mean, we're both working really hard. What does that mean? Does that mean you should, you know, listen to everything I say? No, you should just buy my book. <laughs> That's it. Just buy the damn book. You don't have to listen to me. Buy the book. You know, but, but I mean, the point is, you get a... It, we get trained from the time we're little kids. Work hard, work hard, work hard to get the reward. Okay, so you work hard and then you get the reward. Right. And you think... Hey, mom was right. My hard work gets rewards. Indeed. Right. And, and that may be true, but I will show you an example of somebody who's just as smart, just as hardworking, right. who was not successful. Right. Now, how do you explain that? And the answer is luck. But you don't know where you're getting lucky or not. Right. We got tremendously lucky at Square. Right. We just don't know where. Right. You can't see it in hindsight. Right. right. So it's not, an, it's not an operable idea. Like It's like you have to work hard. You have to be smart, be smart as you can be, work as hard as you can work, recognize you have to be persistent, and it may work. Some things work. Some things work. And some right. things don't. Right. And um, look, I think, you know, you can trot out all the platitudes and say, well, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. I've heard that one. That's a good one. <laughs> um, but the, the, the feeling is, um, and you don't, you don't just count on luck, but um, it's there. Right. And, and the problem with luck is that because people who get successful don't credit luck enough, right. they tend to get very self-important right. and they tend to get very prescriptive. Right. And, oh my God, how many people I've met who've been successful know how to teach you how to do it. Right. You know? And uh, that's not what I'm trying to do here. Right. Um, what I was trying to do, the reason I had to write this book was because I felt that there was a real gap between people who had the potential to solve great problems mm -hmm. and the people who were actually willing to take the chance. Right. And I've heard so many people who I think are really capable right. say, well, Jim, I'd really like to do this, but I'm not qualified. I could never do that. Right. I don't, you know, I couldn't, you know, do my own podcast. I right. couldn't, you know, do, I couldn't do that. And I just want to tell them, look, like if you study the history of entrepreneurship, like of invention, of people who create world-dominating companies, and you trace it back to the origin, biggest bank in the world, started by a guy who sold lettuce. He was a produce vendor, never went to high school, mm -hmm. you know? No formal education past the age of 14, Right. okay? Builds the biggest bank in the world. Right. Biggest furniture company in the world, started by a guy who was 17, you know? Right. Like, you can go through the history of these world-changing right. companies and you trace them back to the origin and you find somebody who was totally unqualified right but of course that's one way to look at it the other way to look at it is look everyone's unqualified if right. it's truly new i mean that's your point your point that's is point. like by definition yes you start from a place of unqualified yeah otherwise the problem's been solved yeah you're not solving a problem that hasn't been solved yeah and and right. and i i think you know, the one thing that Square has done 
in my case is it's given me the credibility to say that. Because right. if you sit there, you know, without a $10 billion company right. and you say, this is how it's done, people go, well, if you're so smart, you know, where's your jet? Right. You know? <laughs> but no, it's really right. true. You, right. can, you can go all the way through this and it's a pattern that repeats and is, is accessible to so many people who disqualify themselves for, for a logic that is almost right. And, and you know, things that are almost right, right are very, right. they're very dangerous because right. you sit there and you say, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense, it makes sense. And then you, you have one little thing that's wrong. Here's, here's, here's why it's almost right. If you want to fly a plane today and you just say, Jim, I'm going to get in. I think I got this figured out. I'm going to take off. I've never been in a plane before. I'm going to figure out how to fly. You're an idiot. Right. You should go get trained. Right. You are not. That's a problem that has been solved. It's a problem. You just don't know the answer. You have not been. Right. You are not qualified to fly a plane. Right. You have not had 100 hours of training. And that's a good reason to not do something. Right. But what it's the first plane? What if you and I just built the first airplane right. in the world? And one of us has to get in and fly it. Right. And you go, I'll go. That's an adventurer. You're still not qualified. Right. You don't know how to steer. You don't right. know how to recover from a spin. Right. Like you don't know how but to land. There's nowhere you're going to go to learn. Nobody has that knowledge. Right. Right. And so here's the thing. If you're going to do something totally new, you're right. going to solve a problem that hasn't been solved before, you are by definition unqualified. Right. And you will feel unqualified. And the rest of the parts of your life where you feel unqualified, you go, oh, I shouldn't do this. But this is the case where you should, right? except that your physiology will react the same way we always do, which is when we do something that we're not qualified to do, you know, we're second guessing ourselves, we're we really worried. feel fear, we feel, yeah. Yes, yeah, right, right. terrifying. Right, right. And I just want, I, I wanted to tell people, look, we are all like that. Right. Every time I do something new, right. every single time, doesn't matter if, you know, Square had its IPO and blah, blah, none of that stuff helps me with the next thing that I'm not qualified to do. Right, right. And you still feel that same fear and you still feel, and the, probably the rush also. Yeah, of like, there's yeah, that. Right, because those two things always go together. Yeah. Jim, it has been such a pleasure to, to be speaking with you. Jim McKelvey, he is the co-founder of Square and has written the Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business One Crazy Idea at a Time. You can think about this as a business book if you want to think about it as a business book, because it is. <laughs> but it is also a really fun and interesting narrative. And you know, you get a you, you, people will get a feel from you from just listening to this. But I, you know, highly recommend the book. And it's been such a pleasure having you. Thank you so much, Peter. For thank you so much. This is super podcast. fun. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. 
Again, thanks so much for joining me today and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.